Welcome to the podcast of top executive coach, Tony Mayo. This podcast is a conversation with one of Tony's clients, management consultant, Ron Diamond. Well, thank you for lunch. It was delightful. Yes, well, I'm glad, you, <laughs> glad we've accomplished something for once. It's a win. Win-win. This is the inaugural, this is the pilot. We're shooting the this pilot. This is it, yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're shooting the pilot, which is generally not a good idea when you're in the air. Yeah. Um, but we're on the air, so <laughs> it's different. Where's my script? <laughs> Did you leave That's a around? question I often ask in life. <laughs> Where's my script? Everyone seems to be in a different movie than I am. Are we supposed to have a script in life? Is it supposed to be all laid out for you and you're supposed to know what page you're on and what's next? That's a that's that's a profound question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I often use the example of people. Everyone thinks they're the star of their own movie. Yeah. Um, but the problem is the people around you are the star of their movie. Yeah. And they often are working from a different plot line. Yeah. Um, I find a lot of teenage boys want to be in action movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so did I. Come to think of it. Uh, and that's a, a, a coaching you you've probably heard from me more than once, is. I try to be conscious of the fact that after I've been out at my job, I come back home and I get to the driveway and I'm about to walk through the door into a place where a different movie's going on. Yeah. And I should, the tendency I think is to walk through the door and try to get everyone to start following my script. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, that doesn't work really well. I've tried it. I mean, if it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I take that driveway moment to stop and think, well, it might be it actually good to regard this as walking into a theater late uh -huh. and what do you do you sort of enter quietly uh -huh. you find, try to figure out what's going on yeah maybe ask the person next to you what's yeah. the storyline yeah. and then see if you want to get involved with that and then you start heckling and yeah then i can bring my own stuff yeah. in yeah so it is interesting when you when you acknowledge stop listening to your own movie and acknowledge that somebody else has a movie and paying attention to them that that's where uh, either communication or empathy starts, is my guess. Well, I think that's one of the key things about it is empathy. I mean, that's, yeah. it's not surprising that you would go right to that word because you're a very empathetic person. Always, somebody's always very concerned about what's going on with the other person. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing a workshop once where, unusually, my wife was a participant. And I was talking about the importance of checking with the other person, seeing what was going on with them, and learning about their, their script. Uh, and she said, well, it just occurs to me that many times you've called me at home and sometimes it's with some something fairly important or urgent, but you always start the conversation by saying, where are you? What's been going on? Mm. How are you doing? And then you'll go into, well, I just got the new contract or yeah. whatever the news is. Yeah. And I've wondered why you do that. Because most people, they pick up the phone and say, hey, I got great news. Right. Jump into my movie. Right, right, right. Uh, Meanwhile, said, the other person's hair could be on fire. Right. And they're probably not going to hear you. Uh, and I said, well, that's exactly why I do it. Yeah. In fact, the more important what I have to say is, the more care I take to make sure that I find out where you are. Wow. So that you can hear it. Right. I want you to get it. So I'm going to take a moment to find out what's going on with you. What yeah. else is occupying the channel before I, I say something. That's taking responsibility for your communication. Yeah. And respecting that the communication matters. Yeah. So much of it, times we just want to get things out. 
uh, the expression I've heard is vomiting it out. You know, if you yeah. get something in there, it's got to come out. You'll feel better when it comes out. Yeah. The people around you feel a whole lot worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I try not to vomit it out. I try to you know, share it in a way that's responsible that I want something to happen. Yeah, very cool. We should probably do an intro or something. Well, I guess. <laughs> do you want to say something about who you are? Yeah, let's. We'll, no, we'll introduce each other. So oh, that's I'm cool. sitting here with Tony Mayo. Tony has been a friend and a coach and a mentor for 10 or 15 years. I don't know. Somewhere in between that, maybe 13. And I first met Tony in, uh, in a, a training uh, environment and later became a client of Tony's in sales training. And eventually, um, a good friend and and um, and a and a coaching client. Uh, and Tony is a bunch of things. He's a what is Tony? He's a uh, uh, he's just a really funny guy. And he's has so you mean many. A, a, a ha -ha Stop way. talking! I'm talking right now. A ha -ha way. <laughs> yeah, he's funny, no, funny looking guy. <laughs> and he uh, so so maybe I'll even talk to you like you're right here in front of me. And, and you have so much experience. I think you should talk to the invisible audience. Oh, okay. So, could, if you can pull that off, you've got can a career. They hear me if, can they hear me if I'm whispering? They listen uh, more when you whisper, actually. <laughs> it's hard to resist listening to someone who's whispering. Have really? you noticed that? Oh, well, yes. I bet you that's true. Or screaming. Uh, just your, you bring your experience to bear in circumstances that are usually very, very pertinent and relevant to a conversation that we're having, especially around coaching. So I'll have a dilemma or a question or a concern or an issue. And you'll bring an analogy, you'll bring your own experience, and you'll bring some insight that, you know, and it's, and it's, in, and it always happens. I have never had a time where you're either lo lost for words or stuck or don't have something to contribute to, you know, what I'm looking for. And that's amazing. I'm so pleased we're recording this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send the copy to oh, my dad because he's not sure I do anything. <laughs> yeah, so that's Tony. Wow. Thank you. That's very, very nice to hear because that's... Mm -hmm. Really, what I intend to do in the world is to is to be what you just described. So I'm glad I've got somebody fooled. <laughs> it also occurs to me that we did the introduction several minutes in, and what we did for those several minutes was talk about how important it was to give people you know context and yeah. tell them what's going on. <laughs> right. Oops. So you know, easier said than done sometimes. That's what editing's for. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. On our budget, how much editing do we do? Yeah, sure. And it's the internet. You don't need an editor. Yeah. The editor's obsolete. Uh, I think I might be able to say Ron's my favorite client, but there's a good chance other clients will hear this, so I probably shouldn't <laughs> say that. <laughs> because there, there is hot contention for that title. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as you said you think it's uh, 13, 15 years, I immediately felt like well, I should come up with a real number. Because yes. you're relying on me to come yes, up with the precise... Yes, you are the facts guy. You are the facts man. <laughs> So I know you did a VSOP in 1997, Seven, yeah. and we had done some sales training before that, yeah. and some landmark education stuff even before that, so I guess it must be 15, 15 years. Wow. 15 years. Wow. Uh, but hey, I have suits older than that, Yeah, and they're holding up better than we are. <laughs> uh, but th there are so many great things about Ron and why I wanted to do this with you. One as you kind of say about me, you're funny. Yeah. Uh, and you also seem to bring out the humor in me. That mm. Many times I've called you with a, in a state that didn't seem to lend itself to <laughs> laughter. And, uh, you helped me lighten up a bit and, and see that. Um, but you're, you're so coachable. Mm. Uh, you're very sincere and clear about what's going on 
and what's missing. And that's really the key mm-hmm. to getting coached mm-hmm. uh, is to not hide the ball mm-hmm. and not pretend something else is what's really going on. Yeah. And you're also willing to try something. You know, not that you're going to follow slavishly anything, everything I say, but you'll try it out. You'll think it through. Oh, yeah, I could try that. Yeah. And then you come back and say, well, I tried this. It worked. It didn't work. And yeah. So that makes you a, a great client. Cool. Uh, and also, I... I I sometimes have a, a Ron in my head. Uh-oh. Uh, you know, so, uh, I was going to get some bracelets made to say, what would Ron do? <laughs> you do that and I'll get a robe. Yeah. What would I do? But it's, but it's in, along the lines of compassion and empathy mm. because you're, you're, you're so considerate of other people. And mm. I can tend to be a bit of a bull about things. Mm. I get focused on things. I just want to go. Mm. I mean, I remember vividly I, when I worked at a, a cubicle when I had a Dilbert job years ago I often had to use the fax machine yet it was a shared device and usually I went to the fax machine because I had a, a sale to close or something urgent and I would walk down the halls to the fax machine and people I mean human beings would want to stop and talk oh. I'm so irritated I I would like hold up that says, can't you see? I have a piece of paper here. I'm on a mission. Get out of the way. And you're my antidote to that attitude. Oh, wow. I mean, it's fine to be mission-directed and goal-oriented, but yeah. Yeah, there's people there's out there. People. And that's yeah. the whole point. Awesome. I mean, that's, that's the point. Hmm. Uh, I sometimes forget which is the, which is the goal. You know, the, the goal of all the paperwork and the doing is to have the relationships and to feel like you're with people. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that about you. I see it demonstrated, and I, and I hope I, I do it more often because I know you. Very cool. Thank you. Thanks for that. What would you like to talk about? Um, I don't know. We could talk about anything. Probably be useful. I to think have we've demonstrated theme. that over the years. Oh, so we, we can, can talk, talk about, about anything. anything. Knitting. Let's talk about knitting. <laughs> I'm looking for the knitting. Normally, there's a knitting basket here, but I guess uh, Christine took it with her on vacation. Um, uh, uh, what are you reading? We could. I want to know what you. I always want to know what you're reading. People often ask me that. Uh, it all, often also comes up in the form from clients of what should I read. Oh. And my usual answer is not what you've been reading. I'm oh. not, I don't like business books. I know you devour them and you great, write these great summaries. Yeah. Um, most business books have at best 20 or 30 pages worth of value mm-hmm. and but to support the industry they've got to create a book but also they become very repetitive there's also a formula to it i read a book the title of which remarkably i cannot remember but it showed the formula for writing a business book it once you've seen the method it's kind of hard to respect the books anymore oh. i also have a blog post about called misreading business that shows how many business books just are so invalid. So when people ask me what to read, I tell them to read really good novels. Mm. Because the key in business, once you've got the basic technical skills down, is people. Mm. Uh, how do you get? How do you understand people? What motivates people? Why do they do what they do? Good novels, that's what it's about. Good novels have tremendous insight into people's thinking. Uh, one series, I think, is the finest literature I've ever read, you can see it over your shoulder there on the shelf, uh, is the Patrick O'Brien's uh, Orbrey Maturin series on a sea captain in the Napoleonic Wars. It's just tremendous lessons on leadership and how people interact, how people can live together in a confined space, get work done. 
so I'm often recommending my clients that I, I, they read novels. Mm. But I haven't been reading much between hardcovers in quite a while. I've been learning to play bridge. Yeah. Which is a, a daunting task. <laughs> what do you learn by playing bridge? What's the lesson in that for you? Well, it, part of the appeal is the part of the, the brain that it uses. Uh, hey, we went this long without mentioning the brain. How about that? Uh, I played chess years ago when my kids first got into it. Yeah. And I was surprised how much I enjoyed it because I've never been a puzzle person. But there's something about working through the options and seeing the results in chess that I found very appealing. And then I began building complex Excel spreadsheets. And I noticed it tickled the same part of my brain. It was the same sense of satisfaction of wanting to construct things in such a way that they worked and then seeing them work mm. with Excel, mm. which is my theory for why chess has declined so much. I think as programming has arisen as a profession, the people who would have been playing chess as a hobby or as professionals have gone into programming. It's more lucrative and you get the same boost. Wow. I took up Bridge because it has a lot of that same element, but it's social. You know, Brit chess is very quiet it's two people whereas bridge it tends to be more talking you move around and play with other people so it's that brain stimulation of building a strategy doing things in a sequence seeing whether it happens the way you had planned and also adding the social aspect to it it's interesting because i used to be a programmer and the difference and i always thought of that as a solitary exercise i'd, I'd have a an algorithm or an idea or a requirement in my head and I would charge forward and I would do it. I always thought of it like art and it was beautiful and you created something and that was what you did. I can't really imagine doing that in a social setting. In other words, having two or three people to hold the same idea to try to achieve the same result for the same mm -hmm. program because there's a certain amount of enrollment or, mm -hmm. or, or you know, there's a hundred mm -hmm. different ways to skin a cat. Yeah. I'd probably are... spend too much time telling the other pe person why my idea is better than their idea for solving the problem. But there are people who promote that. I think it's called extreme programming. Right. And that you should always, you should do code reviews and code walkthroughs. But I think it takes a pretty strong self-image to be able to do that. Because like you said, if there's a lot of ways to do it, and yeah. why not just do what works instead of having to argue for your position? Yeah. That seems to be one of the keys for Pixar, though. They've been getting a good deal of press lately over their management methods. And they, one of their bedrock approaches is a lot of transparency. Everybody gets to see everything at any stage of development. Uh, you listen to people at different levels. It's just relentless, continuous feedback. Mm. I, I assume the reason that works is that it is... What's the term for it? A lot of feedback is negative. It's pointing out what's wrong. It's a gotcha. It's a one-ups. Right. But I think it would be very useful if the feedback is from, I basically respect you. I know you're very capable. And here's something I notice. Mm. Uh, doesn't mean you're wrong. Doesn't mean I'm right. And you may look at the thing I notice and say, that doesn't matter. And that's fine, too. I think it has to be that sort of free exchange without keeping score. So th to have that work. Sounds like you need some ground rules up front, you know, the check your ego at the door. And, uh, yeah, a lot of groups say that. And I, yeah. when, I, when I do group facilitations, we, we set up ground rules. People talk about ch checking ego at the door. That's yeah. a common phrase, yeah. uh, which I think is kind of funny because ego came into the common parlance uh, from Freud. Uh, and that's, he would, you would not want to be in a meeting 
where ego and by the Freudian meeting was at the door. Because with a Freud, the id is your drives, your desires, you know, you know, violence, sex, uh, craving. The ego is what keeps those things in check so you can function socially. So whenever someone suggests as a ground rule, check your ego at the door. Right. I picture this meeting where people are <laughs> you know, hitting each other and right. ripping their clothes or off. Or and, and I know that's not what they mean. I just like to have these internal intellectual conversations. Well, have you been in an environment where you can have that kind of... I know you're just in a Silicon Valley situation. Were you able to have that kind of exchange where people could give lots of feedback without... Absolutely, at all levels. So from uh, from the, you know, the office receptionist to the CEO, you're all in a room and you're all striving to, you know, to really you have one goal, to convert uh, prospects into customers for a product that you think is going to make a difference for people. And it's fascinating. I like it. It's a lot better. That, you know, I come from a lot of large structured companies like Deloitte and Oracle and places like that. And there's the hierarchy, the politics, the... Uh, the games and in a small setting of 15 people in a room uh, that tends to it has to go away quickly There's also a limited amount of funds limited amount of time. I think people are more on purpose or on point I Haven't worked in Silicon Valley. So can I assume that that's the normal approach there? Is that part of the Silicon Valley magic? I think so And, and maybe it has something to do with with company size because they'll they will grow to a certain point then when you right. have to build the uh, you know the org structure and the silos and the little fiefdoms start to maybe it's maybe it's human nature to do it that way. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's once the, the the people who have the vision and the dream for the company lose the control of who they hire and lose the control of interacting directly with people, mm -hmm. and they have to delegate that to other groups. Then you maybe may give up some of the culture, some of that, some of that. Um, you know, entrepreneurial spirit. And you've got the network problem where you can't have everybody commenting on everything when you've right. got a thousand anybody. So. Yeah, you can't. It, it, yeah, you can't. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. More information is available at TonyMayo.com. We appreciate your comments, suggestions for future topics, and most of all, stories of how you applied the coaching. Our email address is podcast at mayogenuine.com. This podcast is the property of top executive coach Tony Mayo, copyright 2011.